your Bibles to Genesis 41. We'll be on page 36 if you're in the Pew Bible this morning. Before we get going this morning, just wanted to give you guys a little heads up on some things. Um, we, uh, for those of you that were here last week, just super grateful uh, that Jake got to bring the word f- to us. If you missed that, you should uh, listen to the podcast. It was, um, it was a real blessing. Um, but we talked about the RET program, the Relational Elders Training Program, that there's some guys in uh, working through that process and how that's kind of the uh, major discipleship mechanism we have for the men in our church. If you are interested in growing as a follower of Jesus, as a husband, as a father, if you think maybe there's a... Um, something in you that you feel like God is calling you into leadership in his church in some way, even if that's not the case. But um, we would just highly encourage you to be a part of RET next time we run it. We typically run it in January. So uh, it's coming to an end right now, and the guys in the program are going to be done here in a couple weeks. Um, But it is uh, really the way that we have, uh, the mechanism we've used to kind of... um, discern the mind of Christ uh, concerning the question, who is called to be an elder in the church here? Um, Myself and and Brian Taft are both elders at Revelation Church. We also have two men who are provisional elders, J.R. Schumacher and Victor Borcher. They're both um, pastors in our church network that kind of zoom in to our meetings and have um, helped lead us from afar for the last number of years. Um, But the goal would be that these two men would step away from that role uh, and that we would raise up an elder board that is completely local. And along those lines, we have, um, the elders have prayed and and sought the Lord on on who would uh, possibly be called into that role. And we approached Jake Nelson a number of months ago and said, hey, Jake, uh, what would it what would you say to the idea that, that you might be called to be an elder here at Revelation Church? Uh, and at first he was like, oh, I don't want to do that, <laughs> which is really the, the appropriate response. Anybody that's like, yeah, <laughs> there's questions. Um, but uh, we've been talking with Jake and Courtney over the last couple months, and Jake has been joining us at our elders board meetings. And I uh, just wanted to let you know that he is, the, the, the title we would give him is an elder candidate. Um, we've identified some areas of development for him beyond relational elders training. And he is working with the elder team to kind of shore up some things and um, pursue the direction of becoming an elder. And so there's no timeline for that explicitly, but we wanted to make you aware that he's kind of in that process. He he and and Courtney are kind of continuing to discern what that looks like for them. And the the elder board as well are are working with him to kind of figure out what, what that looks like and if that is God's will, but we, we feel very confident uh, that Jake is um, called to this role and, and uh, competent for it, uh, and so we're just kind of letting God's will play out in his timing to figure out when that uh, is, when we would um, kind of pull the trigger on that, but pray for Jake. Uh, get to know Jake if you don't know Jake very well, um, and he... he uh, um, is a godly man and his family is a blessing to our community. So uh, that's just that kind of random announcement that I wanted to make everyone aware of um, before we get started this morning. We are, as always, going to be doing some Q&R at the end of uh, the message this morning. You can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA to uh, submit a question. We're going to try something new. We're going to try to put the questions on the screen. We'll see if it works or not. Uh, Technology is always kind of scary, but um, we'll give it a try. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for your people in this place, this community that you've created at Revelation Church. God, we recognize that, that we are just one pocket of many in this community that is worshiping you faithfully. We are uh, several pockets of many in this nation and, and pockets of many more around the world um, that are coming together on the Lord's Day to uh, glorify the name of Jesus. Uh, I just pray that we would um, faithfully take our place among them as members of your body. God, I also ask that you would open your word to us this morning. We are in this section of the scriptures that's just one long story, and um, uh, we have chosen to break it up into little parts. Um, 
and it, sometimes it's, it's hard to figure out where we're at in the story. And I, I just pray that, that you would um, help me to be faithful in the proclamation of your word, that uh, my words would be your words this morning, and that uh, we would hear the voice of the Spirit speak to us as a people and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the summer of 2003, I was the general manager of Qdoba Mexican Grill, just over uh, by, by the hospital, and uh, recently married. My wife was uh, in uh, early childhood development. She worked at a, a learning center. And my parents were um, recently retired entrepreneurs. They kind of have a habit of retiring and then getting back into the entrepreneur game. Uh, but they were pretty much retired at this point. And they came to us and said, hey, what do you think about starting our own childcare center? They had experience opening businesses. I had experience cooking. We were going to have a commercial kitchen. Um, Joanna had experience running a childcare center. My mom was a homeschooling parent, and so she was really good at curriculum and stuff too. And, and so we uh, put together this plan to open this facility in Post Falls. And we uh, um, bought some property and, and built this building. And, and as the date of opening was coming that October, the plan was that because we were basically going to open this business with no customers, uh, we wouldn't have any money. And uh, Joanna and I just married, we needed money. And so I was going to continue working at Qdoba for the foreseeable future and it, until if and when this business could support us. And we were driving to a wedding on the west side of Washington, the four of us, family wedding, and we were discussing this plan. And what just kept coming up was, man, it'd be really good, Zach, if you could just be on board day one. It'd be a really big help for everybody to have just another uh, set of hands and, and to be able to take care of that. And man, I, I just don't know. We, there's no guarantee that we'll have any clients and there won't be any money. And I, what, what's the wise thing to do there? And, and so we spent the five-hour drive to the Seattle area just kind of talking through this and, and we stayed at a B, Airbnb that night. And so me and Joanna went to our bedroom and we were still talking about it. And what's, what's wisdom and should we do this? And is that, I don't know. And I just, I have a habit. I've had a habit of many years of just reading through the scriptures every night and, uh, or most nights. Uh, sometimes I, I, I don't get it done, but um, just chapter by chapter, straight through. And that night I opened up my Bible to Isaiah chapter 54. And I read, Rejoice, childless one, who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the sight of your tent and let your tent curtains be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your ropes and drive your pegs deep, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will dispossess nations and inhabit the desolate cities. Do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Don't be humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. Now, we could spend some time talking about what that meant to Isaiah, uh, what his context was, the people he was talking about and to. But in that moment, that night, those verses leapt off the page. And I knew that I had heard God's voice. I knew for certain that God was telling me the future. That, that I could trust him in this moment, and I, we came back from this wedding that we were at, I gave my notice immediately at work, I quit working my job at Qdoba and started working for no pay at our childcare center. And five years later, when we sold that business, we had 25 staff, served over 100 families with 150 children. God knows 
the future. Jake talked about it last week. One of the reasons we can trust him in his sovereignty is because he knows what's coming in our lives. And the crazy thing is, is sometimes he shares it with us. Isaiah 44, we read, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no rock. I do not know any. God is challenging the false gods of the nations to show themselves because he knows that they're not real and only he can tell the future. In the book of Amos, Amos chapter three, we read, indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. The knowledge of the future is something typically we don't have access to and it can cause us a lot of fear. This is why we need to lean into trusting the sovereignty of God because he knows the future. But this week, I wanna explore the question, how should we respond when God tells us the future? How should we respond when God tells us the future? In this passage that we, we listened to read, God tells the future through dreams, and I still, we've talked about this a little bit, I still believe that God speaks through dreams and visions and words of prophecy. I think those are real methods that God uses to communicate to us. And that might have happened to you or happened to you in the future. There's ways that you should be able to test that to make sure it's from the Lord. But God primarily tells us the future through his written word. There's a lot of future in this book that God shares with us. And so in asking the question, how should we respond when God tells us the future? I think we can see two things in this text. Firstly, we should take God's words seriously. The way we should do that is we should believe that they come from God and that we should believe that they speak to reality. And then secondly, we should prepare for the future that God shares with us. So let's take a look at that first point. We need, to, we need to be people who take God's word seriously. In the first section of this text in Genesis 41, we, re, we read about Pharaoh two years after the last scene. Joseph's been in prison for two years waiting for this, um, this cupbearer to, to remind people that he's been unjustly imprisoned and it hasn't happened. He's just waiting. Pharaoh has this dream it's a crazy dream. And this kicks off the next scene. Dreams are considered portable, por portables, portals into the supernatural world. Portables. Maybe portables too. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> it would be expected that the gods would communicate to people, especially to someone who is considered a god himself like Pharaoh. For, for Pharaoh to have dreams that, that speak to the future seems like a normal thing, but, but Pharaoh is troubled after these dreams. He wakes up from these dreams and he is uncomfortable. Have you ever had a dream that is so visceral and real that you just couldn't shake it in the morning? Those of you that are married, do you ever have this happen to you where your spouse has a dream, where you do something terrible, and then they're mad at you when they wake up? Like, I don't, that, I don't know how to deal with that. I, I like, do I apologize? Because I didn't really do anything, but okay, I'm going to make you some coffee. Sometimes we wake up from dreams, though, and we're like, ah, that was weird, and I'm, I'm shook up by that. Pharaoh has this dream about these horrifying cannibal cows. And then he has this other dream about these zombie plants with mouths that eat each other. And it freaks him out. Last week, again, Jake talked about the dream interpretation industry. There are dream books that the Egyptian magicians have access to and they have the, the ability to open them up and kind of catalog the different aspects of a dream and interpret it for you. Pharaoh has access to all of the best professional dream interpreters, but they fail him. We don't know why, but it's not likely that they did not interpret the dream. They would have been shamed if they did not come up with something. It's more likely that Pharaoh wasn't satisfied by their interpretation. Pharaoh seems to understand here that these dreams have some kind of negative connotation. They are a bad omen. 
Maybe his court uh, magicians, they just weren't willing to say anything bad about their meaning. You know, you don't want to give bad news to the boss. Whatever the reason, though, Pharaoh is unhappy with the interpretations given or the inability to interpret by these magicians. He's frustrated, and that prompts the recollection of the cupbearer, and this is what brings Joseph out of the dungeon. In verse 14, we read, the Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved and changed his clothes and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I'm not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. We see Joseph constantly putting the spotlight back on God here, right? Like God is communicating to Pharaoh. God is giving Joseph the interpretation of the dream. Telling the future is something that only God can do. He says that Egypt is going to experience seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. And since both dreams mean the same thing, this is your guarantee that it's going to happen soon. Here we see Joseph and Pharaoh taking God's word about the future seriously. The first way they do that is they recognize that this message comes from God. See, Pharaoh and his crew don't really have a problem with this. They live in a supernatural world. They, they see the connection between the spiritual reality and the physical reality. But we tend to struggle with this. We play around with all kinds of methods of learning the future that we simply dismiss. If you've ever played with a magic eight ball, or if you've ever gotten a fortune cookie, right? These things are silly. We use them to get laughs. And this is largely a good thing. I don't want to tell you to go out and buy a magic eight ball or make decisions based on your dessert from Panda Express. But I wonder if sometimes we are in danger of treating God's word to us in the scriptures just like we would that fortune cookie. Proverbs 122 says, how long inexperienced ones will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and you fools hate knowledge? Solomon is talking about someone's posture towards God's word. It could possibly be that you today have a posture towards God's word where you are a mocker, where you don't take it seriously, where your, your heart is filled with cynicism about the things that it says. The author of Psalm 119, which is a giant poem about, it's like a love song to the Bible, says, salvation is far from the wicked because they do not study your statutes. The psalmist is blunt. He says, those that do not study the word of God are wicked and lost. I wonder if we are indicted here. Do we just see this book as a somewhat more formal version of the fortune cookie that we find interesting or amusing, but that we don't really take seriously as an actual message from an all-powerful being? Charles Spurgeon says, oh, to be bathed in a text of scripture, to let it be sucked up into your very soul till it saturates your heart. I said, it's such an encouragement to us to take care to love this book. Read it, study it, talk about it, memorize it, take it seriously. If you're not a Christian though, like maybe, maybe you see the scriptures this way. It's just a strange religious text full of quaint stories and pithy sayings. At its best, it's a fine diversion for weak-minded people. At its worst, justification for all kinds of human evil. But if that's you this morning, I, I would just encourage you to test it. Engage the scriptures on their own terms and see what happens. The author of the book of Hebrews writes, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This set of verses is almost a threat. This book will cut you. And if you doubt it's ability to speak, test it. These books contain the very life and power of God himself. Explore that, see what happens. 
But Pharaoh and Joseph here, they recognize that this word is from God and they take it seriously. But secondly, that they rec- the second re- way they take it seriously is they realize that it speaks to reality. This is, this is where we need to be people who decide whether or not the world of spiritual things is all co- at all connected with the world of physical things. See, in the pre-modern world, for most of human history, we believe that the spiritual and the physical were both active, mixed together at work throughout life. And then the modern age comes along and we start thinking that, that maybe the spiritual world is unimportant or even non-existent. Really, the only things that matter are the things that can be examined by the senses and tested with the scientific method. And this is the world that, that we've all grown up in. But we're moving into what philosophers call the postmodern world. We've swung back to an understanding that maybe the world is spiritual that there's something going on behind things that beyond our senses, but we've been so shaped by relativism that we can't assign any objectivity to spiritual things. Two people can, can have a conversation that is logically contradictory rega- regarding spiritual realities, and they'll be fine with it because like, somehow the rules of logic don't apply. Imagine getting a jury duty summons in the mail. Most of us have probably gotten that. It's the best piece of mail you can get. You don't read that and go like, wow, that really speaks to me. I'm going to have to think about that for a long time. No, you, you check your calendar and make sure you're going to be there because they will, you know, fine you or arrest you or, I don't know, hang you. I don't know what the consequences of missing jury duty are. <laughs> They're bad, though. <laughs> but how do, we, how do we treat the scriptures? Do we treat the scriptures like they're actually a serious message from God? Or are they some kind of ethereal, spiritual thing that doesn't really have any basis in the real world? We can fool ourselves into having some kind of special religious relationship with God's word. And we spend time in the scripture. Maybe we even get excited about it. And then we put what we read and hear and experience away in a little box under the bed for the next time that we need a spiritual experience. Pharaoh and Joseph could have told themselves that this dream was true insofar as it goes, but not really relevant to actual life. Wow, that's really amazing, Joseph. Thank you for telling me that. I'm going to have to really think about that and see how that really, how's that going to shape my outlook moving forward? They didn't do that. Pharaoh is ready to completely overhaul the administration of his entire kingdom because he recognizes that this Dream comes from God and it speaks to reality. James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. This is, I think, a warning to us not as people who would dismiss God's word as untrue or irrelevant or foolish, but as people who would value God's word in a moment of spiritual experience or in a gathering on Sunday and then walk away from it, forgetting about it and its power to speak into the rest of our week. How should we respond when God tells us the future? We should take him seriously. But secondly, and this comes out of what James just said, we should prepare for what we know is coming. In verse 33, Joseph just slides into this like uh, job pitch. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. I don't know where you might find one of those. <laughs> and he says, this is, this, is what, this is what you should do. Appoint overseers, take a fifth of the harvest during the seven years of abundance, gather the excess food for the good years that are coming. Store the grain in the cities and preserve it. The food will be reserved for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. It might be easy to think because God is sovereign over all things, that he knows the future, that we are just powerless to act, and we should just be resigned to whatever fate has been decreed. But that's not how Joseph sees it. In his mind, the very reason God has declared the future to Pharaoh is so that action would be taken. 
Gordon Wenham writes in his commentary, the fact that God has determined the matter, that God hastens to bring it to pass, is precisely the reason for responsible leaders to take measures. Joseph suggests that a wise man be appointed to serve at the head of the food preservation project, and he has a plan, a practical, common-sense, boots-on-the-ground plan to save the nation from the famine that is coming. And Pharaoh gives Joseph the job. See, this is proof that they are taking God's word about the future seriously. They are acting on what they know. Joseph is sure about what is going to happen, and he acts upon that knowledge. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie called Don't Look Up. Uh, it, it came out maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, and it's about Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence are astronomers, and they, they find a comet that is on a collision course with Earth. And they share this news with the authorities and everybody is super excited about this discovery and they put them on this tour of like talk shows and news programs and they're discussing this common and it's coming and wow, what a crazy science. You know, it's like the science portion of the news broadcast. And as the course of the movie goes on, these two main characters become more and more frustrated because as much as people are excited about the idea of the comet, nobody is taking it seriously until it's actually big enough to be seen during the day as bright as the sun, and at that point, it's too late. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still, I mean, it's an interesting movie. Um, but when you know something is coming... There's something disingenuous about that knowledge if you're unwilling to do something about it, right? Pharaoh is given information about the future. Just, he gives, God gives us information about the future so that we might prepare for it. We want to be people that take God's word about the future seriously. That we recognize that these are really God's words, that they speak to actual reality, and then when we recognize that, we want to prepare for what we know is coming. So while I opened this message with a pretty subjective story about my own life, the reality is we've all been given quite a bit of knowledge about the future in this book. So what do we know about the future? Interestingly, Joseph's story, which takes place a long time ago, is a shadow of Jesus' story, some of which we are told takes place in the future. And this word about the future doesn't come to us primarily through a dream or a vision, at least one that any of us have had, but through this book, the scriptures that proclaim themselves to be God's word and that the church has had for over 2,000 years and held as its highest authority. So what do I mean by this connection between Joseph and Jesus? Look at verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. And he had Joseph ride in his second chariot and his servants called out before him, make way. So he placed, over, he placed him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. There are at least three parts of this section of verses that map um, curiously onto the life of Christ. And I, I say that with a smile because the scriptures, while being a book written by human beings, have a divine source. And they, they weave together in such a beautiful way. Like, it's really remarkable. But we see Joseph in prison at the lowest of low, exalted above every power in the nation by Pharaoh. Jesus will be exalted above every power. Just like Joseph is seemingly sentenced to death in Egypt, goes to prison, but comes out exalted by the God of the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, to sit at his right hand and to rule the nations, 
Jesus is condemned to death on the cross. He actually dies. He descends to the dead to preach to those in prison and is raised by the God of all creation to sit at his right hand and rule the nations. In one sense, this has already taken place, but in another sense, it is still to come. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read, then I saw heaven opened. There was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the question for us this morning is, do we take that seriously? Do we recognize that this future is certain? That Jesus will physically, tangibly rule the nations and bring judgment against every wicked person? If we would say yes this morning, that we take it seriously, how are we preparing for it? Are we, are we living our lives pursuing holiness, knowing that Jesus is coming to rule in holiness? Are we living our lives sharing the good news with those in our lives that don't know, that haven't bowed their knee to Christ? Because Jesus comes to bring judgment on the wicked, and which do we desire men and women to be saved? Do we live our lives refusing to retaliate against our enemies because we trust that Jesus will repay them for all the wrongs done to us when he returns and exercises perfect justice in the world? See, this word of God about the future that Jesus, the king, has been exalted and he will rule and he will reign should have a profound effect on the way we live our lives. Secondly, we see that Jesus will marry his bride from among the nations. Just like Pharaoh gives Joseph a Gentile bride, the father gives Jesus a bride called the church composed of men and women from all the nations. Revelation 21, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This passage hints at a theme that is all throughout the New Testament, that the church is engaged to be married to Christ. This text uses the city as a stand-in for the people that live in it, but the scripture points us, Jesus' people, as his bride. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. There is a day coming in the future when all of those who are part of Christ's church will celebrate with him in a great marriage feast, when our engagement is over and our marriage has begun. Again, if we are people who sit under the authority of this book, if we take this seriously, how are we to prepare for it? I wasn't engaged for very long. We were engaged for three months, I think. Long engagements, I don't know about that. If you're, if you're considering like a multi-year engagement, come talk to me, we'll figure that out, I don't know. When you're engaged, what do you feel? Excitement, anticipation, impatience. Because I had so much love in my heart for this woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, I couldn't wait to be married. Do you recognize that Jesus thinks this way about you? That he is eagerly waiting for the day of his marriage to his people? That he loves you so much and can't wait to be with you forever? In this famous passage in Ephesians, Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And again, in some ways, we are currently united with Christ as his people. He, his spirit resides inside of us. But in another way, 
the wedding day is still future. And Jesus is gladly working in us by his spirit to make us fit for that day, to make us his perfect bride. When we were engaged to get married, Joanna began to make decisions about her life going forward. We had a wedding registry where we picked out all the things that we thought we needed for our new home. My mom made matching curtains and bed linens for us. That was a step up from what I was uh, decorating my room with. But an engagement triggers something in a couple. Okay, we're moving towards something and we've got work to do. We have plans to make. There are things to get prepared. Do we think about the future that way? Are we anticipating the fact that we are engaged to be married to Jesus and he is both working in us and calling us to work in cooperation with him for our own holiness? Are we preparing ourselves, cooperating with God's spirit to become the wife of Christ? Blameless, spotless, perfect. And when we think about the way God sees us, do we believe that he is just as excited about that as we should be? That he can't wait for that day. The third thing I think we see in this passage is that Jesus will rule a city that always has enough. Just like Joseph led a city marked by an abundance of grain where all of the nations could flow in and get sustenance when there was none anywhere else, we are citizens of a city that will never have any lack. Revelation 22, starting in verse one, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever." This is a poetic picture of the economy that Jesus oversees. This city of abundance where there is always enough to go around, where people can stream in to find healing and wholeness and satisfaction and joy. In Psalm 50, God says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God makes this declaration that he is in need of nothing. He has everything. We see Jesus demonstrate this abundance and generosity when he feeds thousands of people by creating food where there was just enough to feed a single boy. And because this is the way that Jesus runs his city, how should we be as we interact with the resources we've been given to steward? Paul tells the Corinthian church, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. The present time, your surplus is available for their needs so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. See, Paul recognizes that he lives in the economy of King Jesus. He lives in a world where there is always enough. We tend to see the world that we live in as a world of scarcity. If I'm gonna get more, someone else has to get less. There's a finite number of resources that we're all fighting for. This is why we have uh, nations and cities and, and, and walls. And in Jesus' economy, that just doesn't exist. Jesus' city is full of abundance. And we are citizens of that heavenly Jerusalem. Do we take that seriously? Do we believe that that is true? 
that we are citizens of the Jerusalem in heaven where there is never any lack, where the ruler of the city makes sure that everyone has what they need. Do we give freely of our abundance or do we stress out about our need and hoard the things that we are given? Even if you never receive some kind of supernatural dream about specific circumstances in your life, and that's not, that's not guaranteed to anyone, we have all been told the future by God through his word. We can all know what is to come. And the question is, will we take it seriously? Will we prepare ourselves for it? Because it turns out the answer to those questions have a huge effect on our lives today. Paul says in Colossians 3, so if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's entire pitch for the Colossians to live lives of holiness, kindness, generosity, self-sacrifice, is that they are to be people that are looking to the future, looking to the promises of Christ that are coming his exaltation over all the powers, his, his marriage to his people, his city that is ruled by generosity. Focusing our lives and our hearts on these things, believing that they're true and shaping our practices around them will change us. John Chrysostom, who lived a long time ago, he says, Nothing ordinarily so repairs the soul and makes a, better, a person better as a good hope of things to come. And I feel like when we are so saturated in a world that is just overflowing with cynicism, and I know I feel it in my own heart that I can get really cynical, that it is such a healthy reorientation to remember the future. This is what's coming. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has promised to us. And this is on the way. And even if it doesn't happen tomorrow, even if it doesn't happen next week, orienting your heart towards that truth is a repair for the soul, like Chrysostom says. So we can be people with a good hope of things to come because we have been shown the future. And I would encourage us this morning to take that seriously and to do what we need to to prepare for it. Let's do some Q&R. Is it working up there? Ooh, that's so exciting. Maybe, it's thinking. Hey, there it is, cool! We're so technical, okay. <laughs> when something happens in our life, like a breakup, how would we determine whether it's God's plan or if it's God's plan to you per to pursue the relationship? <sighs> Wise counsel from older people that you trust, people that you've um, that walk closely with Jesus. I think that's probably the place to start. Being, um, being consistent in God's word, rolling over um, the values that you intend to live your life from as informed by the scriptures and comparing them to that relationship. Is that relationship honoring to Christ? Is that relationship bringing holiness out in you? Or is it, is it destructive? Those are some things that I would, I would ask, some questions I would ask. What are tools for discerning promptings we sense from God? I'm gonna say this a lot, but other people um, and the scriptures. There are many, many times where we, uh, spiritual experiences can be deceptive, right? You can have a dream that feels really, really real and is just your brain having a, a holiday, right? 
You can have a sense. I mean, I'm, I'm a, one, one of the things that I'm grateful for is I don't have any feelings. Um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a joke. Uh, but I'm, I'm just not prone to like, I just really sense. And, and I, I'm grateful for people who are built that way that I can trust, who I can go like, what's going on here? And I can hear like, I really sense the Lord saying this or speaking this way. And I trust them because I've seen the Lord work in their lives. But I don't feel that way. So, so when, I am, when I'm discerning the will of the Lord, I, I want to go to the scriptures because I hear his voice in the scriptures. Uh, and then I want to I go to other people that are wise and follow Jesus and have for years and have made good decisions. And, and I want to hear what they have to say because they, they definitely see things that I am missing. Um, so just if, if, you are, if you are wrestling with, with what should I do about this or I feel like God is prompting me like that, don't, just don't do that in a vacuum. Make sure you have people that will tell you the truth that aren't afraid to tell you what you don't want to hear. Like Pharaoh's magicians, like they're, they were afraid of saying the wrong thing. Make sure you find people that will tell you the truth. Do we need absolute truth in order to be objective, something unchanging to bounce our thoughts of? Yeah, absolutely. This is where the scriptures come in, right? Like the scriptures are our highest authority. They are inspired by God. And there are so many things in our experience that are valuable. The traditions of the church, uh, authors and, 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 and leaders who have written and thought for centuries about what it's like to follow Jesus, uh, saints in our congregation that can speak into our lives, uh, and then you can get into the exercise of the gifts, words of prophecy and, and, and dreams and things like that. Those are all valuable in their own way, but they all have to roll up to the scriptures. If if you are convinced that God wants you to do something that the Bible says is not okay, or you are convinced that you are exempt from something that the Bible says you, is a command for his people, like there can't be that, that miss there. There has, there has to be alignment with the scriptures or um, any subjective uh, discernment or experience isn't valid. If God knows the future and Jesus is anxious in marrying the church, why is the wedding date so mysterious and unknown? It's because every, every movie's got to have like that arc, right? That comes up in that tension point. Every story's built that way. No, seriously, this is, this is kind of a version of that question that Peter talks about. Like, the people are saying, like, what, where's God? What about all these promises that he's going to return? This is, everything has been the same for so long. And Peter says that God is, God is not slow concerning his promises, as some people count slowness, but he desires that everyone come to faith in Christ. And so he is long-suffering. Jesus wants this wedding party to be as big as it can be. And so he is committed to working to bring every single person that will come into the kingdom. There's a, one of the parables that he tells is uh, about a, a feast and, and he says, he invites some people and they don't come. And so he sends his servants out to invite anyone who is willing. And they all come. And then the people say, there's still room. And so he sends them out again to go into the darkest parts of the town and the countryside where the people that nobody wants live. And he says, invite them because we want as many people here as we can. And so we, I mean, there's probably a lot of things we could say about why, uh, if, we, if we knew when the return of Christ was, how that would affect our lives. Uh, it's intended to be a mystery and uncertain because it's intended to shape us to be um, always about his business, always about the work of bringing people to the banquet, always about the work of pursuing holiness, not knowing the day or the hour is um, meant to provoke excitement in us. Yeah, good questions. All right, we're going to take communion. The communion meal itself is future-focused. We are to participate in it to remember Jesus until he comes. Today we have FaceTime video. But during World War II, soldiers would put tiny pictures of themselves inside a locket for their wives to wear while they were away. 
to remember them, but also to anticipate their return. The analog is that Jesus is going to return. When he calls us to remember him, he's not just saying like uh, that thing that I did back there, although that's incredibly important. His death and his resurrection are integral to our faith. He's also saying, I'm coming back. I will be exalted above all things. I will marry my bride. I will oversee a world filled with abundance forever. And all of these things are foreshadowed in the bread and the cup. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're a Christian here this morning, to come to the table to participate in the body and blood of Christ given for you in remembrance of and in anticipation of Jesus himself. And as we, as we sing, as we worship together, take some time to ask yourself, do you take God's word about the future seriously? Can you point to ways that your life today is being shaped by your understanding of what is to come? And if you're not a Christian this morning, you can make the decision to give yourself to Jesus today. You can accept the invitation to become part of the bride or you can continue to be one of the enemies of God that is conquered and destroyed at his exaltation. But that choice, that, that gift, that invitation is before you. As we worship, you're, you're welcome to sit or stand. You can come to the prayer rugs and pray. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps us change the posture of our heart. Before we take communion together, we're going to remind ourselves of who we are and the allegiance that we have to God through recitation of the Nicene Creed together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.